So good evening. Congratulations on finishing your first day of loving kindness. This is no small endeavor, as you have no doubt discovered that particularly if this is your first time you've done a meta retreat, you uh, see the chasm between your lofty expectations of the retreat fantasy, as in floating, bathing in love, radiating kindness and peace and luck, radiating <laughs> compassion in all directions, to, oh, oh this is kind of hard. It's kind of dry and boring and <laughs> struggle. And uh, so we come up against our expectations. You know, we all, anybody not show up with an expectation of how this retreat would be? of how your heart might grow, or the love might flow. Right? And then we actually meet the reality of our experience. So I want to talk about both that and also uh, really the, the journey of this practice, where we start from what happens, uh, what obstacles we encounter, and what flows from uh, doing the, the hard work of cultivating this intention towards kindness, towards love, towards care. So um, I've shared on this retreat one of my favorite Far Side cartoons by the Dharma teacher Gary Larson, who um, uh, he has this picture of um, uh, people in hell and Satan is coming out of the fiery dens of hell and he's shouting mom no no don't do that and underneath the caption says despite his repeated efforts to refrain to restrain his mother he could never quite stop her offering cookies and milk to the freshly accursed <laughs> and she's there with a little tray of cookies and milk she's got a little tail and horns and a you know penny of satan on it and this is the irrepressible movement of the heart. Right? The heart is in this quality of kindness, of care, is innate. However far it might feel distant today, um, that's where we're starting from. And it's always important not to rem- lose sight of that, that we have this innate capacity to care, to be friendly, to be warm, to love. And it's an ability, as Sharon spoke so beautifully last night, It's a capacity that we train, that we cultivate, that we nourish, that we grow, that we look at what's getting in the way of that. And we all arrive with plenty of stuff that's maybe interfering with that. And that's partly what we look at on this retreat. It's a New Yorker cartoon of a woman uh, sitting bedside to her young son and he's asked some delicate question about her unconditional love. And she says, heavens no, sweetie. My love for you has tons of conditions. <laughs> so we all arrive with various experiences of love. And much of that is conditioned. Some we've had good role models, some not so good. And so we're here to really establish for ourselves that knowing, that understanding, that lived experience of what it means to meet ourselves, our experience, each other with a kind heart. 
which as you've been experiencing is a little harder than it sounds, which is why we have these retreats, which is why this is called a training. And it's interesting to think about what drew you to the practice. And we could do a survey and there'd be many, many reasons why you're drawn to this practice. Some of you come here year after year. Some of you come uh, drawn to the inspiration. Maybe you know people who are incredibly loving and kind. You know, someone mentioned His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And we have these beacons of compassion and kindness that point to this possibility of how we can have such depth of love in our hearts and in our lives. But some of us come out of a lot of pain, out of loss, out of heartbreak, out of feeling very distant from love, uh, bereft, or uh, struggling to find uh, a sense of warmth or care to ourselves. Or we're maybe just wondering and questioning how do we find a resilience of heart in these times? You know, where there's so much turmoil, so much political instability, so much challenges personally, collectively, socially. How do we keep an open heart? I know since the last election, it's been much more challenging for many people. And I think what particularly draws us is how our heart is often close to ourselves and is often the, the most poignant pain. And it often saddens me when I work with people. It saddens me all the time, actually, when I meet people who seem beautiful, kind, reflective human beings, and they can't see that. They can't see their goodness. They bought some story, some inner critic line, um, some reflection they've received from somewhere where they're not able to see their goodness, their good hearts. Or we spent too long listening to the voice of the inner critic. Anybody heard the judge today? Anybody heard your inner critic going, ah, the, you know, whatever it's saying to you, you know, it's a pretty familiar voice. Who are you to offer loving kindness? I know what you're really like. So we have a sense of imposter syndrome, right? Where we feel like a fraud for wishing loving kindness because, you know, of course, there are many moments where we're not feeling that and we may have acted unskillfully and hurtfully. But that doesn't deny us the, the knowledge that we have goodness in our hearts, that we have capacity to love and care. So, you know, partly what this practice does is reveal what gets in the way, and I want to explore that tonight. And I'm happy that we start these retreats with mindfulness, because really the, what I think is the, the fruition of a mature practice is when the practice of mindfulness and kindness become integrated. So we meet ourselves and each other and experience with a kind presence, with a loving awareness, with a compassionate uh, awareness. So, like today, how are you meeting your experience today? At times, probably the heart was touched and open in moments, maybe fleeting moments. Other times, quite challenging and struggle. How can we meet that with a kind presence? 
my favorite lines from the Sixth Zen Patriarch. He said, do not think that awareness and kindness are separate. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the fruition of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Right? As we develop awareness of ourselves, of each other, right? it becomes the basis from which to be loving. And out of that, awareness becomes the, the, the expression of kindness, compassion, etc. So, I think one of the challenging things when we come to a meta retreat, and I know when we asked how many people had practiced loving kindness, most people raised their hands. And if we're doing that practice, you know, for a few minutes a day or many minutes a day on our cushion, that's one thing. And then to suddenly be asked to do it all day, <laughs> sitting, walking, standing, lying down, eating, drinking, showering, that's a whole different order. Right? And I know it's, it's often true for myself. You know, I've, I think I have fairly decent access to being kind and caring and in my, my daily practice also. But when it, with the first day or two of retreat, it suddenly disappears. Like, where did it go? It's like a dry, barren landscape. <laughs> I thought I was a kind person. What happened? Right? Sometimes it's just an initial shock of having to really dig deep into this practice. So please don't give up. You know, as, as I mentioned the other day, that this practice is a purification practice. And so naturally, it will bring up everything that gets in the way of your heart residing in love. Which is actually a good thing. It just doesn't feel that great. <laughs> Especially if you have a judgment that you should be abiding in love all the time. So it's actually the good news when we start coming up against all the various ways that kindness is challenging. This is how the heart grows, by looking at what interferes. What have you learned today that closes the heart down? What have you learned about the way that kindness is, is inaccessible, maybe to your body or your heart or your mind, or a stranger, or someone we consider other, or when we get hurt. You know, in pretty much every meditation retreat, we talk about the hindrances, and they're also what comes up in these days, both in general in a retreat, but also in the context of loving kindness. How many people are still sleepy today? Yeah, a good half of the room, yeah part of just being on retreat, part of arriving often tired. And of course that is going to interfere to some degree with the heart being open. If you can barely keep your eyes open, if you can barely remember what phrase you're saying or what you just said, you know, and Sharon mentioned some phrases, I've had my own wacky phrase, may you be nappy, may you be filled with peas, may you be hippie and dippy, may you hippie and smell, you know. you know, and you've probably got your own funky phrases. You know, it's wild what the mind comes up with. So to be patient with the sleepiness and to ride those waves. And then so there's the opposite of sleepiness, restlessness. Sometimes we're just impatient. It's two o'clock and it's, we've had half a day of loving kindness and I'm not feeling anything. Come on already, heart. 
what's with this retreat? I want my money back. (laughs) We have such a short, uh, both short attention span, but also a high expectation of, you know, return on investment. Come on, I put many hours already. Where's this loving kindness thing? And then there's the way that the heart uh, closes with the opposite of kindness, with aversion, with fear, with resistance, right? And again, that will also come up. And there are many ways that that expresses itself. So I think um, the, as we orient kindness to ourselves, it's not something necessarily socially or culturally that's that normal. You know, I grew up in Northern England uh, where this idea of wishing love for yourself was anathema. It's like, get over yourself, get on with it, toughen up, don't be self-cherishing, don't be self-pitiful, buck up, and um, what's your problem? You know, not, a very, not good grounds for self-compassion, really good grounds for being hard on yourself. And as I mentioned the other day, you know, so often what interferes with our capacity to appreciate ourselves and see our goodness and see our good qualities is our judgmental mind. And I think of the, the inner critic and this, this self-deprecating habit that we have as an epidemic. You know, the, amount, the more I teach and the more that I work with people one-on-one, the more I see how, what a curse that is and how few people escape this inner voice or or boardroom of voices that are on our case about not being good enough, not being lovable, not being uh, a good person, um, not being smart enough or cute enough or wealthy enough or not got our lives together enough. Whatever it is, it's not enough. And so we build build up this bank account of deficiency and scarcity and not enoughness. And of course, the more we listen to that, the more we believe that, it's hard to summon up any sense of desire or wish to to wish ourselves well. Very painful. And if that's present for you, you know, it's really important to notice that, to see how much you've been listening to this voice. And as I mentioned the other day, one of the reasons I think the loving kindness practice is so powerful is because we're replacing the negative diatribe of the critic with kind, positive, affirming, benevolent wishes that slowly alter the neural pathways of the brain. Instead of waking up going, you're such a loser, you then say, may I be happy? Yeah, but you're late for the meditation, and may I be peaceful. Look, everybody in here looks so almost enlightened, except you, you miserable wretch. (laughs) And may I be free from suffering. Yeah, but your meditation's pathetic, and may I be free from your voice. (laughs) And on it goes. So recognize the critic. Every time you hear the critical voice, just add a metaphrase. You know, it's simple, just may I be happy. May you go away. <laughs> may I be free from 
listening to that voice. And so we begin to neutralize that very potent uh, force that's really undermining of our worth, our value, and our well-being. This is a cartoon strip from my favorite, one of my favorite comic strips, Rhymes with Orange, and it's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. And it's kind of like the opposite of wishing well for yourself. And it's things we often do in meditation, which is why I read it. So there's a picture of a woman visualizing someone who's a, a winner, and it says, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Looking in the mirror, examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. This is a really popular meditation one. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. And I would add especially the people who share your last name. Right, so we bring up, you know, someone in our meta practice and then we, we recall the ways that we've disappointed them or let them down or Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. This person's getting a compliment. Ah, you look great. And they're saying, don't patronize me. (laughs) And then lastly, resign yourself from now on. This is how you will always feel. So this really fuels the hindrance of doubt, self-doubt. Who am I to love? How can I love? Maybe... Some of you thought you were quite a loving person until you came to the retreat, and then you realize, oh, maybe I'm not so loving after all. It's actually quite hard to sustain this quality of care and affection and kindness. And then we see just the mental habits that we have, the habit of checking out, the habit of rather than holding someone in our, in our hearts and minds and wishing them well, we get on a busy uh, uh, improvement project we start thinking all the ways that they could be a better person, the things that they should be doing, and we, we can't wait to get home to tell them. We have all these insights about what would improve them, and improve their lives. That's not meta. That's just thinking about someone. And they probably wouldn't find it very pleasant to be on the receiving end of that. Or we're just busy fault-finding. You know, we do that in a critic with ourselves, but guess what? It has a swing door and it swings outwards. You know, Joseph talks about sitting on retreat here in the dining room, sitting in a perfect view so you can see everybody walking in the dining room. This was a long time ago. And he would notice he had a judgment about every single person who walked in. Walking too slow, walking too fast, eating too much, eating too little, wrong socks, too loud shirt. You know, we have these habits, amazing habits. So notice as you, as you notice someone as you're walking or you're sitting, Oh, you're in the dining room. And how quickly the mind, with its negativity bias, look towards what's wrong, to what's problematic. Right? And you know, not to judge that, but just to see, well, look at how my mind leans, and then to go, oh, and may you be happy. Yeah, they're really obnoxious socks, but may you be peaceful with those socks. <laughs> or, you know, someone has a really huge bowl of food, and may you be well-fed and happy. Or they're walking really slowly and you're, you, it's lunchtime and you want to get to the front of the lunch line and may you be at peace. You know, it's a sweet thing to do. So we can warm up the field of the retreat. Sometimes fine. people say the retreat's a little cool because we're all in silence, people are looking down, not much social interaction. And it can feel a little socially uh, cool or awkward. 
but we can we can pervade the field with a, with a lot of warmth and kindness to each other as we're sitting, walking, doing dishes and whatnot. So another facet of what begins to arise in the retreat is we begin to see the conditionality of our hearts. Right? This practice is orienting us towards an unconditional love, a boundless love, a love that wishes everything for you and asks nothing from you. And that's a, that's a expansive quality of heart. That's a mature love. You know, most of us are pretty familiar with conditional form of relationship, romantic friendship, where there's certain conditions placed on that of how you should be, how you should show up. And, um, and so we can see you know, even with our loved ones, friends, benefactors, we can see that we have a sense of agenda. Well, I'll do this practice for you if you stop being a jerk. I'll love you if you're nicer to me. Or may you be well, and may I, may I expend this time wishing you well, um, as long as you'll change, as long as you'll be less self-centered, or whatever. So just notice the ways that our love has these filters, has has ways that it gets closed. And again, not to judge that, but just to seek. Because if we don't bring these things into awareness, we don't have the opportunity to release them. Or maybe we sense uh, a quality of tribalism. How easily it is for us to feel love for certain kinds of people, those we know, those are familiar to us, those who we feel aligned to in some way, and everybody else. We might not like to admit that there's an everybody else, but there's usually an othering going on somewhere. Some interesting empathy research uh, that I've been reading about, where even if people uh, have a diff- who support a different football team, people's levels of empathy goes dramatically down if they're from the opposing team. And the same if, and the same if they're from a different political party, vote differently, also empathy goes massively down. With empathy going down, compassion goes down, and kindness goes down. Right? So these even very small differences and affiliations can actually significantly impact our heart's ability to extend itself. You know, we see that politically, right? We see when we're attached to a view, a political view, political affiliation. There's a lot of people not uh, included in our affection who hold a different point of view. Sometimes we, and I I come across this, I teach uh, a lot of mindfulness and uh, these heart practices in organizations. And one of the, the fears or the resistance of opening the heart is it'll make me too soft. I won't be able to do my job as a manager, as a leader. I'll be too, you know, maybe a little wishy-washy. Sometimes we have fears of opening our hearts to others who are harming others. With some idea that if we do that, somehow it will uh, make us soft or we won't be able to stand up. Uh, for others or against injustice. 
So noticing the, the different ways your heart has either ideas or just roadblocks. How many of you have extended the loving kindness to ticks? Right? And black flies and mosquitoes. And who knows what are the creepy crawlies are out there, right? Well, I love the, the deer and the chickadees, <laughs> but not the ticks or the mosquitoes or the black flies or the noceums. Right? Again, not to judge that, right? It's not like we're gonna invite the ticks into bed with us, like that's not what we're talking about. It's fine to leave the ticks at the door. May you be happy in the grass. Thank you very much. Right? It's not, it's not, we don't lose our wisdom and, and, and discernment. Right? But to notice when the heart and the mind contracts. I remember teaching a meta retreat some years ago and the, quite one of the common questions that comes up is how can you, when we extend to all beings, how can you love all beings? Because half the beings are eating the other half of beings to survive. And so and she was having a lot of trouble with that. And she took a walk down um, the lane uh, past the pond. And uh, one snowy morning she looked up, it's in February, and there was a shower of feathers raining down from a tree. And there was a hawk eating a chickadee. And she wanted both to be well. She wanted the hawk to survive and she wanted the chickadees to survive. And the heart can hold the paradox. The mind gets caught in contention and struggle. But the heart could, could hold that dichotomy, wanting both to be well, knowing that one still had to eat the other to survive. So this is why we train. Because in many ways, and I just mentioned a few of them, ways our heart gets constrained. Um, Sometimes we just get bored and we check out and we go play a movie in our head. Or it's a lot of effort and we don't want to make the effort. So we practice, we train, we come back to this simple wish, this simple intention over and over and over. And it's very powerful. And it's partly powerful because of the, the, the structure of the brain and neuroplasticity. As we cultivate this intention, this orientation of mind and heart, we're literally reconfiguring the brain, the structure, the neural pathways. As the Buddha put it, I call him the first, the early neuroscientist, whatever we incline the mind towards, that the mind becomes. We're inclining our minds and our hearts to kindness, to warmth, to care, to love over and over, as we do that as a practice, as it becomes established in our life and our being, we start to become the quality that we're developing. It's just how it works. Just think about uh, all the years that you've been cultivating your judgmental, nitpicky, critical mind, right? What happens after doing that for a few decades? You become pretty judgmental and nitpicky. Is that who we want to become? And so the beauty of this practice is it's giving us another choice, another possibility. And the, ch- and the choice is up to us in any moment. We can cultivate and orient the compass of our lives in different directions. 
And so these teachings are saying you can, you can establish these qualities, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, through intention, through inclining the mind and the heart, through practice. So when I started doing this practice in 1984, um, as I mentioned, I had uh, felt like a bit of an uphill battle. I had a lot of self-hatred. I look at my, my journals from that time and they're just full of really painful, uh, critical, judgmental thoughts. I was, like, I was like a living embodiment of the inner critic. And, um, and I started doing this practice and, uh, and it just felt like there was a lump of ice in my heart. Just felt numb, blocked, a little dead. And, and I could do, I could feel warmth for others, but not a lot here. But I had enough faith in my teachers who just kept encouraging me to carry on with the practice. And, and every now and then I get a glimmer of possibility of what that would be like. And, but it's slow, you know, 34 years later, I can say there's been good result. But it wasn't overnight. It wasn't in a year even. It was many years of patient, diligent practice, coming back, seeing the goodness, uh, not listening to the critic, and slowly being able to permeate some of the, the, the rawness and the numbness. And it wasn't until later and later in practice, when I was practicing here, that I realized there was a lot of trauma that was actually blocking and restricting that capacity to love. But what I did begin to see is um, the ways, and I remember this very pivotal moment in one of my meditations, and I was living on a farm in a retreat center, and I was in meditation, and my critic was really on my case about something, and it was just lashing into me about not having done something right. And it was just incredibly painful. And instead of listening to the critic and being very allied with the critic, which we normally are, I was able to feel my heart and feel what it's like when someone is, is chastising you. Right? Just like when someone lashes out at you and verbally criticizes, undermines you, puts you down. Right? It hurts. It's the same with ourselves. We just don't notice it. It's become so second nature. So one of the things I noticed that started happening in, in that practice, because a lot of the meta practice I did towards my body, and that's one doorway into uh, feeling meta for yourself, is by wishing meta for your body. You could do a body scan. You can put your hand on your heart and just feel a gentle appreciation and affection for the body or wishing the body well. Right? Sometimes it's hard to offer ourselves in a, in a generic way, so there's different entry points. One is feeling oneself and wishing meta for each part of the body, appreciating the heart and the lungs and the hands and the eyes and the ears and the legs and the feet and just in the skin and all the ways that our body allows us to thrive, right? even if the body's in pain. So. Think about where doorways in. Sometimes we have people reflect on themselves as a young person or as a baby. And maybe that's your doorway in. And so as I, as I started to feel more kindness, I started to take better care of myself. 
was more mindful of the junk food I was eating. And I was smoking at the time. It's like, well, that's not really to, you know, to uh, do a practice of loving kindness and then go outside and have a cigarette. This didn't seem to be very congruent. You know, so I gave up smoking. You know, but I've watched other ways people have developed this sense of self-regard. Um, one simple expression is people uh, are more able to set boundaries. There's a greater sense of self-respect and the ability to say no out of self-love, out of self-care. Or being less aligned with the critic. I have a student in um, uh, California and she has this big garden in Berkeley and um, she feeds the birds, which means mostly feeding the squirrels. And um, she noticed how the squirrels you know, would really uh, you know, go, friend, go have a frenzy for feeding in the fall, fatten up for the winter. And, um, and then in the spring would, would shed that winter, winter weight. And she realized that she did the same. She would eat a little more in winter, maybe slowing down and colder and less exercise and that burn that off in the spring. She had no judgment for the squirrel, tons of judgment for her. And then when she saw that, she began to see, oh, this is just what we do. This is what I do. Less judgment. I had a client who was a um, student in therapy, client actually, who was... Um, uh, in the escort business and struggled for a long time with, with the, the ethics of that work and, and the pain of that work. And as she deepened in her meta practice, realized that she could no longer do that to her body and was able to beautifully uh, honor uh, her body and the sensitivity that came from the practice. I have another friend who... Um, uh, also had a very uh, challenging relationship to herself and her body and was uh, a keen student of the meta practice. And one of the practices she started doing um, was instead of waking up in the morning and just thinking of all the things that she hadn't done and all the ways she wasn't good enough, she would just say to herself, hello, good morning, good morning, in a very as kind a way as possible, in a similar way to saying, May I be happy. Good morning. And then she added, good morning, I love you. In the beginning, that felt a little like, mm, really? I don't really believe that. But over time, she was able to feel that in a very genuine way. Good morning, I love you. And I thought, what a sweet way to wake up. Good morning, I love you. You might try it tomorrow morning. When the bell goes off, oh, God. Oh God. All right, good morning, I love you. You get up in the morning, instead of looking at all your lines and wrinkles or blemishes or whatever you, the mind fixates on, the, the graying hair or the diminishing hair, whatever. Oh, good morning, I love you. You can actually do a lot of meta practice in the mirror, it's very sweet. You know, eventually what, something came up in the group today about vulnerability. And I think what the meta practice does in, in its essence is allows us to meet our humanness and our vulnerability. Our critic, our judgmental mind is saying it's not okay to be you. It's not okay to have mistakes. It's not okay to have foibles. And uh, the meta practice is orienting to ourselves and each other and life and saying, welcome, you're here. 
I love you. It's okay to be you. So recently I was uh, in Mexico teaching on a wilderness retreat and I just came back and I was in the hotel and I get a call from my dad in England who lives in this tiny little village in southern England in Hampshire. And, um, <clears throat> and I said, oh, Dad, why are you calling? He says, Mexico is the expensive call. And he said, um, well, I just finished an eight-week mindfulness self-compassion meditation course. I thought you'd want to know that. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> My dad's 79 um, and was never really that wild about my, my Buddhist meditation journey, at least for a long time. And, um, but we were uh, in the pub, as you do when you're in England, uh, at Christmas, and he, was, he's, he had a very difficult early childhood. He was fostered uh, and adopted and uh, through a slew of families during the war, very painful. And because of that, has long, long history of feeling just a sort of a core wound of, of, of unworthiness and, and shame. And um, so we were talking and I, I was tearing up because it was a very heartful conversation. I said, Dad, I said, you know, you, the th- things you can do about this. You know, he was talking about the ways that he's l- leaned out of himself for love. And I said, you know, it's, it is possible to turn that you know, and to, to love yourself. And, and there's practices. You know, I, I'm, I'm in this world where there's a lot of these teachings and tools and practices. Uh, I have friends who've written lots of books about this kind of thing. <laughs> and um, he says, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I said, well, there's, there's this course called Mindful Self-Compassion. You might, you might take a look at it. It's really, really good. And it just so happened that in the, he lives in a tiny village. In the tinier village next door to him, there's a woman trained in mindfulness and mindful self-compassion that was running a course the next week and he jumped in. And I got this beautiful email saying, you know, I did the course and then he called and, um, and he said, yeah, no, it's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. It's just a start. And I'm, I'm doing the follow-up course. <laughs> and it's just so tender. But I was just so happy because you know, what I, what's so beautiful about these practices, right, for, you know, and I'm sure as, as I, as for many of you, right, we, we come into this world, we have a, whatever conditioning we have, and maybe you have had a, a lot of pain in your life or a very contentious relationship with yourself or your body. And without these tools, I would have been floundering. I don't know what I would have done without this practice of loving kindness for 34 years. I certainly wouldn't be able to see myself in the way that I do now, which is much more objectively and kindly, uh, much more appreciatively. And, and I'm, I'm happy for my dad that he's had that same experience. I'm happy that you're here also learning these really essential life skills. So over time, so that's, that's the, I've been more talking about the relationship with ourselves, but of course, um, as we'll be developing the practice, we also get to really work in a very nitty-gritty way with our relationships to others. Tomorrow we'll be exploring our relationship and wishing better for friends. And we may call to mind our best friend, a person we love very dearly. And yet, when we bring them to mind, we're merrily wishing them love and kindness, and then something comes up and says, oh, well, I can't believe you said that thing the other day. And you really weren't there last time I was having a hard time. And I'm not sure you are my best friend. You know, we start looking at these different subtle layers and nuances of our, of our friendships and the ways our heart can, can feel startled or contracted. 
and then we'll expand to, to cultivating kindness for strangers, people who are neutral to us, which is also a very rich part of the practice. And then, then working with our enemies or people we're finding difficult. And we get to really work out this muscle of love, of kindness, in ways that are not necessarily easy. But we get to see the pain and the, and, and the suffering that comes when the heart's closed, hurting, rejecting, unforgiving. So over time, the, the metta practice erodes a sense of separateness and, and erodes a sense of um, stinginess or restrictiveness around our heart. <clears throat> There's a beautiful line from Rumi. He says, there are no edges to my loving now. There are no edges to my loving now. What would it be like for your love to have no edge? For your heart to have no edge? For your kindness to have no edge? Which means no sharp boundary or separation. It's a beautiful aspiration. And then what happens often in retreat and intensive practice is we bump up against the edges. And again, not to judge or condemn the edge, but to see... Uh, to explore what is that edge and to feel the, often the painfulness of the edge. And maybe even, we might even feel the history of the edge. You know, this practice of, of dissolving this sense of separation or boundary becomes itself a wisdom practice. I see metta practice and the Brahma-vihara as these, these divine abodes of the heart as profound wisdom practices because they reveal our essential commonality, our essential humanness, our essential non-separation, which is a beautiful way to both understand and to live that we're not as separate as we think we are. Just like that reflection that um, Sharon did about reflecting on all the people that were responsible for you being here. It's a mass of people, not so separate. And then over time, uh, this practice of metta begins to infuse itself into, into everything we do, including our mindfulness practice. And they become one and the same. Right? When we tend to something with awareness, we find if we're really present, that at some point affection comes, or curiosity, or interest, or love, or fondness. Or affection. I remember I was walking, hiking in at Spirit Rock <clears throat> up towards the cabin I was staying in, and I saw this long blade of grass. It was a, a blade of wheat, uh, oak grass leaning into the path, and there was a tick right on the end of the tip of the grass doing its tick thing, which is, you know, all, all arms open, waiting to grab on, you know, shake your hand as you walk by, you know. And I had such a lot of fondness for that tick. Like, of course you're there, that you're doing your tick thing. You're trying to survive and, you know, procreate and all the things that ticks do. And I'm going to give you a wide berth. But it was just very sweet to feel that tenderness rather than fear or startle. And over time, our heart becomes tenderized. We become more sensitive, more attuned more impressionable, less closed. Which means we feel more. And that's one of the reasons why we may not 
uh, allow our heart to open so much because we don't want to feel the fullness of what we're going to feel. You know, often, often there's a view that doing this practice, we get a little flatlined. Right? We start to look like this all the time, you know, like a stone Buddha. That is not the point. <laughs> We're not made of stone or metal. We're fully feeling, sensate, fleshy, warm-blooded mammal mammals that feel, that care, that love, that grieve. This is from a colleague of ours. We were teaching together at Spirit Rock and he had to leave early. And if I can fully read this with my poor reading glasses. I wanted to share with you something that happened this evening on my way back from the Baltimore airport. A deer stepped in front of the car I was driving. For the next 30 minutes, I kneeled quietly in the night in a meadow as she, and then watched as she struggled to stand, to, to move over and over and collapsing each time. I found myself whispering, oh my friend, I am so sorry. Take all the time you need. There is no rush. Take all the time you need. I held matter in my heart for the deer, and I held matter in my heart for myself. When the time came, I kneeled by her and placed my hand on her wounded body as she slowly parted. Tears fell, tears of openness, of allowing, of sorrow, of feeling into the sacred space. What I really wanted to, t- to say to you is life is precious. You know that. Keep practicing. So what I love about the, that story is just the, you know, we've been teaching a meta retreat, heart very open, and then just the, the exquisite attunement and attention to that very painful experience. Right? Very, very real life experience. How, and then the, the, this is the, the, the integration of mindfulness and metta, where we meet the tenderness and the fragility and the poignancy of life. And so it's also a, an ordinariness, right? There's a, and I know when I first encountered these practices, I sort of put them up in, in my mind as very lofty, you know, boundless loving kindness, boundless compassion. But they're really closer than we think. Right? The world survives on this simple, ordinary kindness, the way that we hold a door for someone the way that we take someone's bowl and wash it, the way that we call a friend when they're sick, the way that we listen to a loved one who's hurting, 
the way we tend to our own pain when we're feeling sadness or lonely. And what arises out of this kind heart is responsiveness, a care. It's really the seed from which the principle of the Bodhisattva comes, one that wishes to dedicate the, welfare, the, the life to the relieving of suffering. But it also happens in very ordinary moments. As we reside more in this quality of heartfulness, we begin to see more the goodness of others. We'll lessen the fault-finding critical mind and more seeing the innate goodness. What would it be like for you to look around this room and see the innate goodness of every person rather than however else you might ordinarily look at people? Out of fear, or judgment, or difference, or what do they want, or what do they need from me. A friend of mine began working in San Quentin and Soledad prison as part of a project, prison project, that friends of ours run called GRIP, Guiding Rage into Power. And it's a somewhat mindfulness-based, uh, deep emotional, uh, training, and he had a lot of reservations and um, fears about going into prison. It was a world that he had no exposure to. Um, and uh, as he sp- began spending time in this program and listening to the inmates there, um, began to hear their stories and the tremendous amount of pain that pretty much every single person who was in the program had come from and what had led up to their, their various crimes. And um, as part of this uh, process, there was a circle that happened when the, the, the prisoners are paired up with a, uh, older and younger, um, or more experienced and less experienced uh, person in the training. And out of this particular conversation of sharing, um, people were talking about the various pains that they'd been in and, and, and struggles. And one of the, the younger men said, now I get hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. And the mentor who he was with said, yes, and healed people, heal people, healed people, heal people. And so it was very insightful for my friend to see the goodness that lay there in a place that he'd previously had a lot of fear and some judgment. So mostly what I wanted to say tonight was to have faith in the goodness of your own hearts, to have faith in the goodness of your practice. And no matter what arises here, to be watchful of, of making an evaluation. And as Sharon pointed to yesterday with a couple of stories um, of the, the error of looking to the practice and the meditation 
to see if it's doing any good. Right? Just be here, do the practice as well as you can. It is doing its work. But you may not see that till you're back at the office or you're dealing with your screaming kids or your partner who's uh, being acting out in some way or you're reading the news and you're, and you're feeling tremendous heartbreak at um, what's happening to the climate, for instance. To know that we all have this capacity of heart to be kind, to be loving. I remember teaching some years ago with a Tibetan teacher, a monk, who'd been imprisoned in China for 20 or 30 years, tortured in tremendously brutal conditions, managed to uh, be released and then escaped Tibet, and then been teaching ever since and raising money for other people who are in prison and people who escaped from prison. And, and it was amazing to, to feel the resilience of the human heart. Maybe you are also noticing this at times here, that we can go through tremendous heartbreak and pain and loss and sorrow, and many of you are. And yet we can find this capacity not to close, or this capacity not to become embittered, or capacity to keep the heart open, to forgive. And this person, this monk, was incredibly forgiving of his jailers, of the system, and the people working there, because he realized they were causing as much suffering for themselves as other people, and the horrendous karma they were generating for themselves. So to trust your practice and trust the goodness of your practice. Let's sit for a moment. (coughs) I'll leave you with some words from Thomas Merton, Christian contemplative and really speaking to the blooming of the heart. He says, In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people. They were mine and I theirs, and we could, be a, and we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, the core of their reality, not different than mine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, all the time. There would be no more wars, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the the only problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. for your practice. We'll be sitting together again at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.